0: fulfilling love and dreams. For the first five years after graduating from university, I was mighty busy running several businesses at the same time, riding horses, climbing mountains, hunting, reading, making friends, going out ballroom dancing, exploring the countryside. I also tried to sign up for flying lessons. But my mother screamed at me, you survived Dachau and now you want to kill yourself? So out of respect for my mother's fears, I delayed learning to fly. A friend took me flying in a Tiger Moss aeroplane and we did a dead loop, flying in a full circle vertically, upside down. I loved it. Then I began thinking that I would soon be 30 and that it was time to find a woman I could love all my life. I began looking with purpose. It took me a while, yet I had an enjoyable time searching. One day, while visiting Johannesburg on business, I called the telephone number someone had given me for a blind date. People kept giving me telephone numbers. They must have felt I was in need. I called Esme Cohen, She was away in Europe. No problem. I called again a few weeks later and Esme was back in town. I invited her for tea in the afternoon. I had tickets for the following night for a flamenco dance troupe that was visiting from Spain. I always loved flamenco dancing. Now I had to decide whom to invite. After having tea with Esme, I had no doubt whatsoever and invited her to the show. I was very happy to meet such a delightful woman. After that, things happened very fast. Soon we had dinner together, and I told her that when we got married, we would go to Europe, across the whole of Europe. She pointed out that I had not asked her yet. She thought, I may have been drunk that night. But I confirmed my intentions the following day. We got married in March 1958. I was totally totally in love. It was the first time in my life I had wanted to get married and it happened. I was totally happy. Now at age 90 I want to confirm that I'm still in love with Esme. Esme's parents were from Lithuania and had left after World War I. Her mother, Hilda, was born in Kaunas, where my mother and I were born. Her father, Abram, was from a small town called Pashvetin, very close to my father's town of Xiaolai. One day, our fathers were discussing their childhoods. When my father remembered being in a field outside his town, When a primitive airplane landed there, Esme's father exclaimed, I was there too! The plane was a simple structure of wooden canvas flown by a grandson of Mendele Mochasforim, the writer of classic Yiddish literature. He was flying from Berlin to Moscow while his mechanic was driving on the ground. He needed to land for a repair and both our fathers were there as young boys to witness it. So our family connections go back a long way. Esme moved to Bulawayo with me, and we worked together on making the stop-action advertising films. Some evenings, she sat with me while I did the radio repairs. Once I opened a large radio receiver, and a small mouse ran up my arm to my shoulder turned around and went back into the radio. I quickly closed the cover and sent it back with a note to please remove the mouse before sending it back for repairs. Esme's parents had been in business a long time, running a leather factory called Rand Leatherworks Limited. Esme's mother, Hilda, worked full-time alongside her husband, Abram, every day for many years. Later, their sons, Norman and Liu, joined in. Liu had graduated as a mechanical engineer and, after a stint in the mines, joined the factory. Norman became a skilled buyer and manager. Esme, after graduating with a degree in social sciences, used her skills as a salesperson in the plant. She went out with two heavy suitcases carried by a member of the staff behind her, and visited the wholesalers in town. After initial amusement from the wholesalers, who had seldom seen a woman selling, she was taken seriously and was very successful. Her father had wanted to cut her commissions to discourage her from going to Europe on her own, but she stood her ground and went off to Europe for a long visit. I met her just after her return. Esme's brother, Liu, visited various exhibitions in Europe and collected some interesting information about the innovative technology of electronic welding of plastics. In 1952, the South African government had passed a new segregationist law and was seeking tenders to produce millions of plastic pouches for the black population to carry their hated passes. Restrictive documents that gave the bearer permission to be in certain districts only. Of course, only black people had to carry these. Liu worked out a price with the government without having laid his hands on the new equipment required to produce these pouches. It was a very bold move for the family to accept the large order and give guarantees that they would deliver. Liu flew to Europe and ordered the machines and materials and began this new production facility on the second floor of the leather factory. They named the company Weldo Plastics, Esme's father told me that he did not sleep well the entire year. The risk was great, but Liu managed to produce the order on time and with decent quality. After living in Bulawea with Esme for a time, her family, who had always received me warmly, offered for me to come to Johannesburg and join the family business. My electrical engineering knowledge could be of use with all the electronic production equipment. It sounded very interesting to me, and we decided to make the move. I sold off my several small businesses and entered Weldo Plastics with a great enthusiasm. I enjoyed talking to Esme's father in Yiddish about Jewish events and issues. He spoke and wrote Yiddish well even published letters in the Yiddish press. I soon felt at home in this family and comfortable in the business. My parents were then living a more stable life and I was less concerned about moving away from them to Johannesburg. My mother had learned English and started a factory for manufacturing women's clothes with a partner and my father got a job as statistician in a large factory. They lived in their own house. My mother loved experiencing new things, and she traveled whenever possible. She also had a dramatic band and participated in theater productions. She was a delightful storyteller. An event took on life when she told about it. Her letters to friends and relatives were admired and retained. In another time, she might have been a writer. Weldo Plastics Limited quoted and received the second large order for the government pouches, so there was a lot to do. I became familiar with the machines, learned to repair them myself, and later worked on developing more efficient ways to produce the product. My metalworking experience was most useful, and I was soon building complex tools for the welding process in our workshop. Liu was very kind and accepting of me, even when he did not agree with my suggestions. We learned to discuss matters as engineers, arguing about our ideas logically and respectfully. For lunch, the whole family would gather in father's office while mom brought the food. It was a wonderful example of teamwork. Everyone knew what was going on in every aspect of the business. Esme's mother was on the leather production floor the entire day, never taking a rest. She had an eagle eye and noticed everything, even before something went wrong. Esme's father was an expert in leather and would decide how to best utilize each piece. It was a very competitive business, and efficient cutting of the leather was essential. Norman became a skillful buyer of materials and supplies. It was a pleasure to work together as a family. I grew up as an only child, so being in a family with several siblings was a new and pleasant experience for me. We began to look for other products to manufacture in the plastics area. The machines were versatile, and we used our creativity to produce our own tools to manufacture any new product that came to mind. I loved the freedom to generate ideas and test them in the market. I felt at home in the family, and full enthusiasm for developing new products. One product we started manufacturing became the key to our future success. Ring binders. In those days, vinyl ring binders were the cheap end of the business. They were poorly made and did not last long, like the leather or sewn binders did. We began to improve the product, step by step and we also developed several ways to decorate them. One process developed by Liu was the applique print. Letters were welded onto the surface of the binder, giving it a raised three-dimensional effect. This was a very attractive but complicated process and became the door opener for our sales because no one else knew how to do it. Our ring binders were beautiful and sturdy, and Weldo Plastics became the leading company in this industry in South Africa. Our main customers were manufacturers who required catalogs for their products. We had an almost exclusive product, but it required a sales presentation each time. I began to go out and deal with top executives in companies, showing them all the unique features and helping design the binders. I began to bring in large orders for thousands of binders. My father-in-law, who was experienced at selling his products, remarked to me that I was a good salesman. I was surprised to hear this. I had a poor opinion of salesmen and did not like to be called one. I denied that I was a salesman and explained that I just make sure the customer ordered a suitable product because I knew the product so well. He replied, that's what a good salesman has to do. In time, I came to accept that I really was a good salesman. I used to tell customers when they were making a mistake, arguing against ideas that would have resulted in poor products. I totally rejected the view that the customer is always right, because often the customer is ignorant. One customer began to call me Molotov, after the Soviet foreign minister who always said no to every proposal put to him. Despite that, this customer used to give me large orders and sent me other customers. I enjoyed myself, and walking out with several large orders in one day gave me satisfaction and confidence. We never hired another salesman. We were all selling when needed, and we were receiving enough orders to keep us happy. Our plastics company began to be very profitable. We produced results that were impossible in the leather industry. But there was one major issue the political situation in our country. I was feeling more certain than ever that this apartheid regime was going to end in a bloodbath, that one can't and should not keep a whole population forever oppressed. The feeling I had while at university that I did not plan to live in Africa for the rest of my life came back to me. Esme and I had three young children by then, Reuven, born in February 1959, Julia, born in November 1960, and Avril, born in September 1962. And I worried about their futures. I didn't want them to grow up with the racial attitude of the white population. Our son, at the age of three, was dominating our garden boy, a man of 30, by instructing him to place him in the wheelbarrow and walk around the property. The gardener complied. He called Reuven the little boss. I began to speak to the family about emigration. They shared my discomfort with the situation. Slowly, we all began to think of emigrating. Then we made a long-term plan. Liu went to the United States and Canada, met some people, and inquired about our potential as immigrants. He chose Toronto. The South African government had tough rules about taking out money abroad, so emigrating required a complex, step-by-step plan to get out. Then suddenly, Esme's father became very ill with cancer and died. We were all devastated. Her mother and Norman were running the leather factory. Lou was working to establish a small plastics factory in Toronto, and I was running the plastics company in Johannesburg. We started to reduce the leather factory's production, planning to close it down, and I managed to sell the plastics factory successfully. Now we could all move to Toronto. Esme and I arrived in Toronto in 1964, but it took three years before we were all able to gather there. It was a large migration. Lou and Sonia with three children, Norman, Esme and I with our three children, and my parents and Esme's mother, a total of 14 people. We all threw ourselves into work with a small company, which was still named Welder Plastics Limited. When Esme and I arrived in Toronto, we decided that we needed to integrate into the community. First, we joined Temple Emanuel, a Reform synagogue. We became active in the life of the synagogue. Esme took on a voluntary teaching job, and I served on the board, and at one time served as president. Later, we found the ORT organization in Toronto, Organization for Rehabilitation Through Training. After I gave a talk about the two occasions in my life when ORT had served me so well, I was immediately invited to work with them, as was Esme. In time, we developed a close relationship with many friends there. Esme served as president of the Toronto Women's Ord, and I was president of the Toronto Men's Ord. We served for many years, and Esme brought in many new members who later served as presidents and volunteers. Through Ord, I became involved in Miles for Millions, an umbrella fundraising organization for many volunteer organizations in Toronto. All faiths and charitable organizations were partners. I was on the board, and I learned much from the chairman, an important official of Shell Canada. It is an art to conduct a meeting with many members, some of whom do not like each other. I served on the board for many years as a representative for ORT. We had thousands of kids and adults walking 32 kilometers as a fundraiser for all the organizations who were members of the group. It was a great responsibility. Things could go wrong and did, but we raised millions of dollars every year. Around this time, there was an established group of Holocaust survivors that was meeting and I joined them. We were meeting in the Jewish Federation building, and by the early 1980s there was a move to build a Holocaust Memorial Center. Many years went by before this could be achieved. I met with Nate Leipziger at Temple Emmanuel, and we became friends. He too was a Holocaust survivor and went through the camps with his father, as I did. We both began to speak about our experiences at gatherings. Later, we began to speak at schools. I served for many years on the board of the Holocaust Memorial Center in Toronto after it was built in 1986 and made friends with many survivors. After four years of challenging work and a good deal of worry, our company became profitable. We were all selling, the three of us, even while doing our management duties. Product design jobs, purchasing jobs, machine design duties, fiscal management, and machine purchasing. My special job was training and supervising the sales force. My father took on the warehouse supervision in our factory. He was a skillful record keeper. Our auditors assured us that there was never an error in the warehouse. He did all his record keeping on paper and cards. Later, when we installed a computer program, there were big errors. Esme's mother hadn't waited long before coming to work in the factory. Since she had been working in a factory from the day she was married, she quickly established herself in the finishing and packing department and took over the management of the department. My mother-in-law was in the factory from opening at 8 a.m. till closing time. She lived in an apartment quite far from the factory, but refused to take any transport but the bus. We begged and argued, offering to have a driver pick her up, but we could not win her over. Hilda worked with several young women in the factory, and they respected her skill and strengths. Sometimes there were funny exchanges between new workers and Mrs. Cohen. She would show them how to lift a carton onto the pallet alone, while they called for help. I worked in one room with my brothers-in-law, Lou and Norman. That way, we all knew what was going on and could stand in for each other. We focused on ring binders as a mainstay of the business. I put much of my energy into sales, developing a process that I've insisted all our salespeople had to follow. We moved several times, each time to larger premises. Then we obtained the North American rights to a different type of ring fitting, the slanted D-ring. It represented a major advantage over the usual round rings because it could hold 30% more paper and the pages lay flat, not shifting and needing to be repositioned when the binder was opened. But these points had to be clearly explained to the purchaser. The D-ring's features gave us a tremendous advantage in the marketplace. We expanded our sales to Montreal and hired Ike Banun, a young Jewish salesman from Cairo, Egypt. In time, he became our best salesman, and he remained a friend of mine for life. Long after, he left our company and established himself in Los Angeles. When we decided it was time to start selling in the United States, We couldn't afford a large advertising budget, so I began to offer a free talk to companies that were giving courses about writing manuals. All manuals require a binder. I developed a talk for about one hour on how to design a good binder and traveled whenever the talk could be given. After my talk, I would distribute our literature and then chat with the participant over a beer. When I returned home, there were always calls waiting for me. Sales began to rise in the United States. Eventually, we purchased a bankrupt bindery in Chicago, and within a few years, that Chicago company, Durand Manufacturing, exceeded our Canadian sales. We transferred all our technical and sales techniques to Chicago and were soon supplying the largest American companies, like all the auto manufacturers in Detroit, with manual binders and catalog binders. We had a full art department to design gorgeous binders, and our applique technique was shining. We won the gold, silver, and bronze prizes in every competition in our industry. During an election in Canada, all three parties ordered the election manuals from us. They were not very happy when they knew all three binders displayed side by side with the slogan, all three parties agree. In 1968. On a visit to Germany to see a manufacturing supplier of ring fittings, I had an interesting experience that had a bearing on my war years. When I arrived at the airport, I was greeted by a company representative who said that he would be my translator, since the company's staff did not speak English. I assured him that I did not require his services that I spoke German quite well. He was surprised and asked me where I had learned German, and I replied, in Dachau. That wasn't true. I knew German from Lithuania, but it was my way of reminding them about their Nazi past. The following morning, I spent most of the day in the factory boardroom, talking to the president and engineers about products and orders. No one said a word about my history. But after the meeting, the vice president's finance came up to me, pulled me aside, and asked me if I was a Jew. Yes, I am, I said. And you were in Dachau? Yes, again. Come, he said. Let's go and have a chat somewhere over coffee. Immediately, I sensed that he wanted to tell me that he had been a Nazi but I went along with him to a coffee house. When we sat down, he started by telling me that he joined the Nazi party when he was 18 years old. I was not planning to have an argument with him. I just said, I suppose you had to join. No, he said, I wanted to join. Then he proceeded to tell me that his father, who had been a diplomat in the Weimar Republic before Hitler, warned him not to join these bad people. And he had walked away from his father, furious. When his father repeated the advice, he turned to his father and told him that if he said it a third time, he would report him to the Gestapo. He added with amazement in his voice, I was prepared to send my father to Dachau. I was taken aback by this statement. It's one thing to disagree about politics, but to send your father to a concentration camp to die? So I carefully asked him if his father was a bad father to him. He was a wonderful father, he exclaimed. Then he told me how, when he heard that man, Hitler, speak, he felt a cold chill running down his spine that he was ready to do anything for him. When I heard him say anything, I thought he must have been in the SS, and if so, I was out of here. I would not have spoken another word to him. I carefully asked him if he had done anything. He understood immediately where I was going with this question. No, he responded, I did not do the pig work in German. I was a soldier, wounded in the Battle of Stalingrad, the largest battle of the war. I was relieved. Then I asked him, did you know what the Nazis did in your name? He replied, yes, I saw it. I was present when they gathered a number of peasants in the Ukraine, pushed them into a wooden church, Put gasoline on it and burned them to death. I commented that it appeared the Germans were now saying that they did not know that such atrocities were committed. Remember, this was 1968. Now Germany is fully cognizant of its history. Don't you understand, he said? We are so totally ashamed. We have committed crimes that will not be forgiven for 1,000 years. That comment brought a smile to my face. Hitler used to say in his speeches that he was building a state for the future, that in 1,000 years' time people would still talk about this, their greatest hour. Now my new friend was telling me about 1,000 years of shame. And then he added something that I have never forgotten. He said, I want you to understand that I joined the Nazi party not because I wanted to be a murderer, but because I was an idealist. I was ready to give my life for my country. I learned a good deal from this conversation. It gave me insight into the potential for young people to follow a leader blindly, even to total ruin. In 1971, I fulfilled the old dream I had as a 13-year-old. I purchased a small plane, a single-engine Piper Comanche, 250 horsepower, and became a pilot. I had restarted my flying education in 1968, Taking lessons and earning my first license in 1969, after 34 hours of instruction, I purchased my plane from Sky Charter and stored it at their hangar at Pearson International Airport. Our good friend Irving Scheukert owned the company. We are still especially close friends with his wife, Dorothy Scheuket, an art collector, and their children. Sadly, Irving died some years ago in 2008. I soon discovered that fog or clouds often stopped me from flying to Chicago or New York. I also had a scary experience in the summer of 1974 when I took my family flying to Nova Scotia and Prince Edward Island. On the way back, we stopped at Moncton to refuel. The clouds were low, but I thought I would be able to stay at 3,000 feet under the clouds. I didn't have an instrument rating, which would qualify me to fly in clouds at that time. And in order to fly, I had to see the horizon at all times. We took off, and within a few minutes, I was totally inside the clouds and could not see anything. I knew how dangerous this was. It takes only a few minutes for a pilot to lose control of an aircraft. Luckily, I had been trying to teach myself to observe the instruments while flying, foreseeing just such an event. I told myself that my test was now. If I panicked, we were lost. I carefully kept the plane level and called the Moncton Tower, saying I was in instrument weather but not qualified, and to please get me back to the airport. The controller gave me a vector, that is an angle in direction to fly, told me to keep her level and to turn around slowly. I did just that. After a while, he instructed me to start a slow descent. Soon I was out of the clouds and the runway was right in front of me. I was so relieved to have landed safely, but my shirt was wet with sweat. There and then, I decided to seek instrument qualification, but I was happy to know that I did not panic in moments of distress. In 1975, I earned my instrument rating, which allowed me to fly in clouds and at night. Now I was a real pilot. I flew my family to Florida, and I flew regularly to the U.S. and in Canada on business trips. I absolutely loved it. After flying a total of 400 hours, I sold the plane and took up soaring. Flying a glider is sheer poetry of flight. My workouts were long, and it fell on Esme to deal with the children during the day. I also asked Esme to come with me to exhibitions where we were showing our wares. Esme was a great salesperson, and her charm and smarts got us many customers from the shows. When she was away from home, my mother and father, who lived with us, looked after the children. The weekends were my time to be with Esme and our children, Ruben Julia, and Avril. Every Friday afternoon, when I got home, Esme had already packed up the wagon and the tent trailer, and we left immediately for a camping trip. We visited every camping park in Ontario, I think. During the summer, for a two-week vacation, we traveled further. We flew on a commercial airline to Calgary, then drove to Vancouver. I flew the family to Florida and to Nova Scotia. We went camping to Kapuskasing and to Moosani and many more places in Canada and the United States. Our kids saw a good deal of our country. I was so happy to travel across this wonderful land with my family. My father worked until he was over 80 at our factory. Then he became ill and died at age 84. My mother lived with us almost until the end of her life when we had to place her in a nursing home where she did not live long. She had lived to see three grandchildren and four great-grandchildren. She was full of life in her old age. though at the end, she hated her frailty and dependence and she did not wish to continue in that state. She died on August 12, 1994, at age 92. Esme's mother worked at the factory until she was over 80, when a sudden internal bleed forced her to go to the hospital nearby. When we arrived at the hospital, the nurse told us that this lady was a bit confused because she was talking about coming from work at a factory. We assured the nurse it was so. I always had a good relationship with Hilda. She died at age 92. In the late 1970s, we began to receive offers for our companies in Canada and in the United States. Eventually, in 1981, feeling like we were ready to do something else, It was time to sell. After prolonged negotiations, we sold to Justin's, an American conglomerate, which was later bought out by Newell, an even bigger corporation. I soon had an idea for another business. It was still 1981, and this was the time of the mini-computer. I hired a good friend, Norman Dash, a skilled computer programmer, and we designed the program for small businesses so that they would need only a telephone line and a screen with a keyboard and a printer to have access to a computer. We would give them access to smart programs for all their business needs, from inventory to payroll for a small monthly fee. When we were ready to begin selling the program, the microcomputer by IBM arrived on the market. We were out of business. Now everyone could afford a small computer. So in 1982, I closed the business. I was not sitting idle for long. An offer came to take on the management of a large company with three factories producing injection-molded food containers, like the kind that holds sour cream. The company had lost millions in the previous five years. Could I fix it? I took on the job. I was searching for something I could improve to allow us to charge more for our product in a very competitive market. I had to learn how the company operated. I instituted new rules about cleanliness and I fixed certain things, but then I found a key. The quality of the text and the images on the containers was very poor. The printing was poor. However, all our competitors' printing was equally terrible. I focused on the issue and uncovered a simple reason. Our long-time employees had never learned how the machine was to be set up. We solved the problem and began to print perfectly. I checked in the US market, the same problem. I rushed into the US market, appointed seven agents and began selling as far better prices. Suddenly, we were showing a profit. The owners of the company were pleased and then quickly sold the company. I ran a few other businesses, when in 1985, Esme decided to start a private vocational school for people who had dropped out of school or just wanted to learn new job skills. Six years earlier, in 1979, Esme had decided to create a special school for teenagers with learning problems, when our youngest daughter Avril had some problems learning and we could not find a suitable school. Esme had named it Springfield School for Girls. It achieved its aims by applying innovative ways of learning. Esme argued that even if a student had trouble with a multiplication table, they needed to know how to manage a bank account and they needed to know basic things like who Shakespeare was, who the prime minister of Canada was, how to use a computer, and so on. The students all did very well. Then Esme joined the Toronto School of Business franchise and opened a school in Oshawa. She later added another campus in Pickering and a third one in Coburg. It was a very fine school with hundreds of students and Esme ran the school for 15 years. One day Esme invited me to join her in the school. I was to develop a program to help the students find jobs after completing their studies. Since I had hired many people in my business career, I knew what to do. I developed a course where we taught them how to find a job by some unusual tactics. I urged the students not to seek work in the usual places like newspaper ads or notice boards. This was before the internet since the competition was too great, and not to send uninvited applications to companies. Instead, they were to find a few companies close to home and then research the details of these companies. Then they were to visit the companies at 5 p.m., go to the parking lot, and ask the exiting employees to give them the name and telephone number of the manager of the department where they wanted to work. After approaching that specific person, they were to display their knowledge of the company and how they could contribute to its success. That method worked very well. We also taught them how to interview successfully, showing them confident gestures to use. A video camera showed them how they conducted themselves during a mock interview and helped them eliminate mistakes in their behavior. We were very successful, getting some 85% of students employed within two weeks of completion of the course. I really enjoyed working with the students. Many were very unsure of themselves And we were successful in building up their self-confidence.